Hello and welcome to Read All About It, the podcast where people talk about their favourite and not-so-favourite books. Join me, Paul Cuddihy, as I take each guest on the literary journey of their life, from their most cherished childhood read and a book they'd recommend to anyone, to the book they couldn't be paid to read again, and much more in between. So listen, enjoy, subscribe and spread the word about the Read All About It podcast. Hello and welcome to the Read All About It podcast. I'm delighted to be joined on this episode by the award-winning novelist and poet, Polly Clark. Born in Canada, Polly came to the UK as a child, growing up in the north of England and the Scottish borders, and she now lives and works in Scotland. She has enjoyed a varied career, including a period teaching English in Hungary, and also working as a zookeeper at Edinburgh Zoo. Polly has published four collections of poetry to great acclaim. She has also published two novels, Larchfield, which uh, won the Mixlexia Novel Prize in 2016, and it came out in 2017. That novel is based on the short period that the poet W.H. Auden spent as a teacher in Helensburgh, and the novel gathered much praise from, among others, Richard Ford, Louis de Bernier, and Margaret Atwood. Polly has also chaired Richard Ford on a UK book tour. And in 2019, her second novel, Tiger, was published by River Run, the story of a dynasty of Siberian tigers and the people who live alongside them. It's told from the perspective of both the animals and the humans. It was shortlisted for the Saltire Scottish Fiction Book of the Year Award. And as you listen to this podcast, the paperback edition of Tiger is making its way into the world and is released on November the 12th. Polly, thanks for joining me on the Read All About It podcast. Thank you very much for having me. There's loads, even just in that introduction, there's loads that I'd love to chat to you about. But can we just start with Tiger? Obviously, I mentioned that this week, as the podcast is coming out, it's been released in paperback. Obviously, there's a real excitement when the book first comes out in, in the hardback edition. Is there still that same excitement? Well, for me, it's very exciting. Well, it's been delayed, of course. You know, 2020 is a really strange time for books generally. I'm very aware, actually, that people who have their hardback coming out in 2020 it's much been much harder for them to get any uh, sort of publicity around it you know with all of the events and so on so in a way I was very lucky in that you know so my hardback came out last year and that's when a lot of the kind of drive about your book happens is when the, the, the hardback comes out but actually having it delayed this far so it's almost 18 months uh, after the hardback I think it's in a way it's oddly more appropriate because it's a winter book, it's full of snow, uh, it's coming out in November and it's also quite, it's a very sort of hopeful story and in the sort of time that we're in, I just think it's, a, it's actually quite a good moment for it. So I feel excited about it in a, in a way I didn't anticipate actually. Because I, I, it's something that obviously people who listen to this podcast regularly will hear me saying every time when many of the guests give me book choices, there's always books that I think, right, I'll have to read this. But right even before that, I think just Tiger, I think, sounds an absolutely incredible story. But when I was looking on your website, and I, I would recommend people go on because you, there's a couple of podcasts that you can listen to which kind of tell the story of the research into the book, which is extraordinary in itself, the fact that you went out to, to Siberia to do, you know, like on-the-ground research. That's right. Yeah, I mean, because it was that specific tiger type of t- I mean there are many tigers uh, and you know I, I knew about them from when I was a zookeeper so I've always been interested in tigers but that specific tiger which is the rarest and the biggest one you can't I mean normally if you want to research tigers you just would go to India kind of hop on an elephant and they're kind of there you know in reserves and it's very easy to go and see them this place is one of the most hostile environments on earth 
there's nobody there. I mean, there's no like holiday mechanism to go. They've only just recently started allowing people who aren't scientific specialists to even go there. And the, the tigers are, are wild. They're not sort of in reserves as we would think of. And, and because it was that tiger, which um, has this particular quality, which is very important to the novel. So the Siberian tiger has an enormous territory of up to 500 square miles, the male Siberian tiger. And he kind of patrols this all his life. And obviously he can't be in all places at once. So in order to maintain that control, which he really does have, the control over all the resources, which are very scarce, there's snow, it's minus 35 degrees, there's nothing there. To maintain that degree of control, there's a, a climate of fear that uh, he creates, such that even if he's not there, you don't steal his kills and so on. And to do that, what he does is avenge any infraction on his territory. So if he comes across it. So they are renowned for holding this immense grudge, a grudge holding mentality where, so if you try and kill one and you don't succeed, it will remember you and it will stake you out and it will come and get you. And there are uh, a few nonfiction books about this phenomenon, which is just almost incredible. You know, the, the length of memory that they have and the lengths they will go to, to defend their territory. So when I knew that that particular revenge quality was going to be important in the novel. It had to be that specific tiger, which meant I had to go <laughs> all the way out there. And I didn't want to. I'm not a big traveller. And it was, yes, it was amazing. I mean, it, uh, not for the reasons I expected, but to even encounter a last wilderness on earth, a, a true wilderness where people aren't, that's a great privilege and sort of changed change my perspective and changed my life. Because even, even just the way you're describing that, as you say, that revenge character that's obviously it's part of its survival instincts, that must have been daunting for you, the prospect of, you know, in any shape or form, being confronted by one of these animals. Yes, I mean, what you do is, I mean, this is the amazing thing with, with this trip that I managed to sort of piece together with this sort of mad cat specialist, and we just sort of went. The big USP of the whole trip is that you're not going to see a tiger. You don't see one. That is a, a disaster on all levels. The tiger will avoid you. It will be there, but its camouflage is absolutely perfect and they are trying to avoid you. So what you do is you track them, which is a, an absolutely forensic skill following tracks. And then you set camera traps where the tigers are. And I don't know if you've, you may have come across it, the winner of the Wildlife Photographer of the Year this year. Yeah, is yeah. Is a trap photo of exactly that. that and the skill involved in setting those camera traps just where they can be because a tiger can sense change and they they go around finding these cameras and destroying them i mean they are just almost supernaturally sensitive uh, i mean among the, the local indigenous people it's a great misfortune to see a, a tiger if it, if it doesn't kill you which it will if you did manage to kill it which is very difficult even if you've got we had guides with guns and everything it'll take loads of shots to kill it even if you did that that's a catastrophe for the wildlife. I mean, they're protected like crazy. I mean, so whether you're killed or it's killed, it's an absolute catastrophe. So everybody is avoiding everybody. And you mainly experience them by experiencing that habitat. And it's a more profound way of actually, because it, it's the apex creature in that entire region. So it owns 
all of that and you feel that uh, they call it the lord of the forest and you absolutely feel it and you come across its kill sites which are like sort of csi murder <laughs> <laughs> but you never see it so i started to think of the trip much more like a kind of pilgrimage where you go to the place and you experience the phenomenon and actually it would be a disappointment as well as a catastrophe to actually see it you can go and see a tiger in the zoo any old time because it's funny when I mentioned about those the wee podcasts you can listen to on your, your website yeah. and kind of tell the story of the trip. And then the first one, you tell the story very long where you and, and as another woman decide you'll just go for a wee stroll, the two of you, and just kind of have a chat. And then the, the guide <laughs> gives you into trouble. I think they even fired a shot just to warn the, the tigers off because... And you describe even just the, the scale of the animal, I think six foot in length. And... That's not the, you know, then you've got your tail on, on the end of that. Yeah, so yes, we did. I mean, when we first got there, that's the, that's the amazing thing. When you see the tiger in a zoo, they're so vibrant. And you think, how can that be a camouflage? And then when you're out there and you see the, the way the trunks are, so they have cedars, which are bright orange and black and brown, and they're all, you know, kind of mixed up. And then this white underneath, that creature just vanishes in that. Its shape is broken up and then the colours, I mean, it's perfect. It just isn't there. And they all say, you know, it can be 10 metres away and you won't see it, but it will see you. So you can guarantee that they are there and they're seeing you, but you, you won't see them. So we, so we saw this forest, which looked very innocent and just thought, you know, yeah, why not? You know, <laughs> <laughs> no electricity, we're cold, we're bored, you know. And uh, yeah, they went crazy. They were just absolutely incandescent that we'd done that. Because at the very start of the podcast, there's just a conversation you have with your daughter before you leave. And I wonder if she then listened to it back because you ask her, what would you do if you saw a lion? And she says, well, I've got and pat it. And you're saying, mm, I don't think that'd be a good idea. And I wonder if she then listens to you and go, come on, mom. <laughs> well, the, I mean, the interesting thing was that we were, you know, I was away with no signal at all on the other side of the world, three weeks. So they didn't hear from me at all. So I don't know how worried she was. My husband said that she, yeah, she did later on because, you know, she sort of hid it or whatever. She's trying to be cool about it. But she did, you know, get a bit teary kind of as it, as it went on, you know, and you just didn't hear anything from me at all. We couldn't even send a text message, nothing. And obviously that research then is brought into the novel. How difficult was it to, because I mentioned the fact that the novels, the, the animals are character and you, you're hearing the, of the voice, as it were, of, of the animals. How difficult was that as a writer? Because obviously you can always imagine a, a human voice and the human feelings and emotions, but you're then having to transpose that into the tiger. I've written about animals a lot and even tigers uh, in my poetry and I'm quite comfortable with that. I think I've felt that writing generally, it's a kind of a, a really like, massive exercise in empathy that is really what you're trying to do you're trying to inhabit something else all the time and you know that's why it's quite tiring <laughs> you always feel like you can't really uh, say that writing is tiring because it's not like coal mining or something but that sort of creative effort of trying to inhabit something else is sort of at the heart of what certainly I, I've been trying to do so I haven't it's not it wasn't so much the um the world from the point of view of the tiger although my tigers my aim was to make them as real as possible. And so knowing about their world definitely helped that. They don't do anything in my book that they aren't known or reported to have done in the wild. And that is so unbelievably crazy in a way, almost unbelievable. They're, they do feel almost supernatural in, in just their capacity to do uh, amazing things. So 
yeah, they don't do anything that they're not reported to do in the wild. And I tried, the research definitely helped me ground them. Uh, so even though you're in their head uh, for a lot of it, the research enabled me to ground them really solidly with the sort of detail of what their world is like. And I couldn't have done it. I was very conscious that when people write about tigers, they're always exoticized and sort of think this is the last animals are the last place where you can kind of other them like that and make them all exotic and not real. And I really wanted to not have that. So my ambition was to, that they are as, I went so that you didn't have to. You go there, you know what it is to be a Siberian tiger. You've been in its world and therefore you feel its journey, I hope. That was my aim. But the actual effect of the research was really more on the physical structure of the whole novel. The novel was transformed by the trip. So the shape of it is four kind of narratives that all converge and it's all, you know, just kind of lightly kind of centered around a tiger tracking a bear and all the other people who were kind of tracking the tigers. And, and so they're all kind of following this trail and, and the stories kind of converge, even though they are completely unrelated, it seems. And that came about because of seeing the tracks in the forest. And that is the most remarkable thing I've ever seen in my life, I think. So, you know, we all know about tracks, but to see them like that in their sheer number and the way that when you have a little track, say a little mouse in the snow, then a weasel will come and it will see the mouse tracks and it will change what it then does. And you can see that because of the snow. And so you have all these narratives that change because they've encountered each other. And that's why they call it the white book. And it's just phenomenal. So you're, and, and, you, and if you follow the tracks backwards, you're going back in time. So that really just totally blew my mind that you could see because of the snow, all the stories that are happening all the time around you that we can't see, but you can see them because of the snow. And then the snow will come and wipe it all away. And then it starts again. And that became the heart of the whole book and the way I put it together. And yeah, just changed how I thought about time as it exists in nature and just the science of, of tracks is just a, a phenomenal. As I mentioned right at the start, the paperback is out on November the 12th. And for anybody who's listening to this podcast, and for me as well, uh, later this week, we should all be heading out to get a copy of Tiger. If, obviously, if people, there will be a lot of people have read it already, but uh, uh, you know, fingers crossed that there's even a bigger response to the paperback. In terms of the podcast, uh, what I'm doing is taking you on your like, a literary journey of your life and you know, setting obviously the, the five questions. So if yes. we go back to, to the very first question, uh, your favourite book from childhood and the book that you've chosen that's Struel Petter by Heinrich Hoffmann, which I'm not sure if it translates as Shaggy Peter, but it's a, a German children's book from the 19th century. Yeah, when I say favourite, it's not because I kind of love it, because it's, it's just formative. It, you know, it's still there all these, all these years later. It, so it's a book of cartoons and little poems about children misbehaving in some way and absolutely terrible punishments coming down on them for it. And the one that sort of, in fact, I downloaded the book to have a look at it again, because there are just certain images that are just there. And the one that uh, just the little story, it's a little sucker thumb. And I don't know if this is why my mother got me the book or whatever, but you know, poor little sucker thumb, he, you know, he sucks his thumb, his mother tells him not to. And then she goes out for the day, he does it. And this absolutely terrifying 
bloke comes now. I've got, I think I've even jotted down the lines. Oh yeah, the door flew open, in he ran, the great long-legged scissor man. And I remembered this and it's exactly as it was, you know, on the page when I just looked at it the other day. This terrible, terrible, scary man with great long legs and arms and this pair of scissors and he cuts off this little boy's thumbs. And then his mum comes home and he's just looking rather sad with no thumbs. And, sort of, and then the whole message is, well, you know, that'll learn you. But, <laughs> and it's, it's just full of little stories like this. And it absolutely scared the living daylights out of me. But I think something that really stuck with me, even creatively, is this really bright, cheerful tone. It's very colourful and the great rhymes and the, you know, funny little people in there combined with this view of cruelty of the adult world and uh, yes yeah, so kind of bright and cheery and underneath like whoa and around them we all read the fairy tales as well Grimm's Anderson's children don't really have it now I don't think because everything's so sanitized and abridged and everything but my childhood was just a non-stop stream of horrific tales like that and playing in fields and that is why it kind of sticks in my mind it's an absolute pinnacle of kind of the sort of things we read or I certainly read it as a child. You can almost understand why in, in this day and age that's maybe not right because that's for a child's <laughs> book that is as dark yeah. as you can yeah. get I mean that's extraordinary that you know it's not even just maybe there's a moral message but it's the it's the brutality of somebody coming in and yeah. cutting the people's stumps off that is that's actually quite shocking. It is shocking. No and then they have no one that stayed with you. Yes, and the, the one the one after it is about Augustus who wouldn't eat his soup. And you know, it's just Augustus who's a lovely chubby boy and one who always eats his soup when he's told. And then just the next day for some reason he says, I don't want soup today. And it just shows him getting thinner and thinner, and he still won't have his soup, and on the fourth day he's dead. But it's done with such kind of aplomb and cheerfulness and everything. Yes, but you're right. These are scenes of child abuse, but it's kind of, um, I don't know, it just seemed to be very, very common what we kind of read back then. I mean, they do sanitise the fairy tales now. I've been rather sorry with my own daughter that as a way of teaching them to read, you know, they take really quite harsh stories like Rapunzel or something and just completely sanitise them and, make, and simplify them. So she's never read any of those fairy tales in their original version and they're so powerful and she's kind of missed that because they're used as reading exercises. Because I always kind of feel that you know that all those kind of classic fairy tales, Grimm's fairy tales that, that most people will be familiar with compared to what you're describing from Heinrich Hoffman they, see, they, they already seem really sanitized and quite gentle and then as I say that that's for for children because what age would you have been when you, when you read them? Uh, five, six. Yeah, maybe I need to be talking to my mother about it. <laughs> she just seemed to always be turning up with something. Well, the Grimm's fairy tales are quite awful and they're very bleak. And I suppose the question everybody will want to know is, I haven't read it, did you stop sucking your thumbs? Oh, well, gosh, I don't do it now. So it had an effect, <laughs> if, even if it was a delayed one. As I say, it wasn't a book I was familiar with, and mm. you'd mentioned right at the start with kind of illustrations and stuff. In some respects, people were saying it might be almost like a kind of precursor to comic books, just in terms of the way it was set out. Yeah, I didn't actually realise it was that old when you said it's 19th century. Yes. I didn't realise it was 18, that old. 1845, I think. Oh, is it? Yeah. Oh, wow. Oh, I didn't. I didn't appreciate that at all. I mean, it feels very 
sort of mo modern. I mean, there's a couple of, you know, that wouldn't get through now, you know, out now racist, really. There's a couple of the stories in there. But yeah, well, I guess that's how it was then. It, children weren't children, were they? They were just little adults and just basically behave or you get it. Because the other thing that I noticed again and just in the research that apparently Mark Twain had written a, a translation of the book called Sloven really? Slovenly Peep. It wasn't published in 1935. Apparently there was like copyright issues at the time. Wow, how fascinating. I didn't know that. Yeah, so I don't know if I'm amazed that I haven't heard of it. I'd be grateful if my parents didn't traumatise me. <laughs> I mean, it's massively entertaining. This is the thing. I mean, you can't, you can't ignore it. There's not a dull thing in it. It's just, yeah, scary. In terms of your own journey in this podcast, I take you on. To, so the next category would be your favourite book from a teenage student formative years. And the book that you've chosen is Clarissa by Samuel Richardson. It is just, it's enormous. I don't know if you've ever seen it. It's some over a thousand pages long. And it's the first novel apparently written in English. And it's all letters. It's a history novel, and it's and it basically just tracks the story of the uh, ruin of a young woman by the charismatic Mr. Lovelace, who sort of woos her and then steals her away and then destroys her, basically. So I came across that when I was at university, and I wasn't uh, a tremendous success at university. It was very much sort of in my own own head. I had actually failed one course I started off doing zoology and sort of failed it and so thought well I better do English and uh, philosophy so I moved over to that and when we got our reading list for English uh, it was really traditional it was at Liverpool University really traditional syllabus and I just you know like all these people like Dryden and Pope and I mean just it was just a sea of stuff that was incomprehensible to me basically and then they had a supplementary reading list of you know if you've got time have a look at this. So I looked at that one because I thought that's bound to be more interesting than the one I've got. And Clarissa was on it. So, so I just you know, picked it up and oh my God, I was just, that was six months of my life gone. I did almost nothing else apart from read this book. I was absolutely glued. There's something about letters. And I, I noticed on your website, you talk about letters as well and just how important and powerful they are. And that was a time when people wrote letters. I was a massive letter writer and it was a lifeline a lot, a lot of times. I used to keep carbons of my own letters. I mean, I just had, I, I was just, letters were one of the purest forms of communication. I just thought if I could be a, a, alone on a desert island and just be able to write letters to people, I, I'd be much happier than having to actually interact with them in real life. Do you know the sad thing about, I mean, I totally agree with you in a lot of pieces, it's called the lost art of letter writing because, you know, people texting and messaging and, and obviously destroying the English language in the process. And I just, there was something about writing a letter, but also receiving a letter. So I, either, either way was always joyful. So I, I, I chose like six friends. I hadn't told them, so I wrote each of them a letter. And it was just all about how, it's quite sad, this lost art of letter writing, how we all remembered when you started to get letters or you wrote letters. And, and then each of them was a wee bit personalised as well. So every one of them got back in touch and said, that was so lovely, it was such a nice surprise, handwritten letter. But none of them wrote back to me. They just texted me or phoned me and I thought, point crazy. Isn't that oh, such a shame that, isn't it? It was, it was quite sad, actually. Yeah, and I, you wonder how people will ever really 
compile biographies anymore and how how you really can keep track of past lives now now that now that it's all just so so easy to lose I mean it's you know you think you've got it but then your laptop busts you don't know how to you haven't backed up and that's it it's all gone you think of the number of times where people send angry emails or instant texts or not even angry but just there's there's some thought put into to what you're going to put in a letter because you're thinking about what you want to say but you're also thinking about the person that's going to receive it there's just something so personal about that form that I think I I absolutely agree with you I think for a whole variety of reasons it's it's a shame that we've lost that it's such a powerful way to tell a story as well I mean I you know I'd have thought you you think oh gosh it's gonna be all kind of broken up and fragmented but coming back to Clarissa it's like it's such an early novel and so enormous and yet absolutely coherent and only letters no commentary no nothing just hundreds and hundreds of these letters and uh, I was absolutely enthralled by it and neglected everything else and it and it yeah it's really stayed with me just as in fact I don't you know when I get the time I I wouldn't mind having another having another go at it because it's just so such a powerful story you know a very old story and kind of the oldest story of all but yeah, just resonated with me so much. And I guess now with the time that's passed, it's almost a sort of, yeah, sadness for the loss of that. Because it didn't feel strange or odd then that you would, you know, believe you could write a novel just as letters because we were all doing that anyway. Now it would seem, it make it seem even more kind of old fashioned, I suppose, in, in a way. Although, although maybe not, I don't know. I don't know. I think it ought to have a modern readership. I don't know if people read it in universities anymore. Because I was wondering as well, you know, you said you looked at the kind of the primary reading list and there was nothing on that. You know, sometimes when people see the size of a book, it can be quite daunting. That, and I think, again, when I just checked, it's somewhere in the regions, it's one of the longest books I've ever written, it's somewhere in the region of, say, 950,000 words. Did that, that didn't put you off at all? Or are you thinking, my goodness, I'm no, not I could disappear that? into it. I could disappear into it. And it completely, yeah, it was everything that I would want from a novel. And actually, in a way, I suppose that's taught me something as well. It's everything. This is long before I, I was a, novel, a, a novelist. And I was um, basically, I was, uh, you know, an aspiring poet. And I always wrote anonymously. And I didn't, you know, I was very much not really out as, as, any, as any of these things. So I was coming to it very much as a reader. But it's taught me, yeah, that is what you want from a novel. You want to just go somewhere else. And I cared about the people in it. I, cr- I remember crying at the end. I remember the last 100 pages. I just was like, oh no, I just, you know, meanwhile, I'm not doing, you know, I'm in some, this horrific flat in Liverpool, not going to classes or anything. <laughs> I just, I'm just sort of sitting there in my grime reading uh, Clarissa. And I, you know, I have nothing in common with the people. You know, they were all, it's all kind of, you know, aristocratic people from the 1800s. And, but, oh, I was there and I've never forgotten it. So it's, it's a triumph. It's a triumph of literature, I think, uh, that I would aspire to. It's interesting. Uh, I think back in 2015, the BBC did a, a thing where they, they listed the 100 greatest Scot- uh, British novels. These are subjective lists anyway, but Clarissa yeah. was, was uh, I think, 14th on the list. Oh, was it? Oh, great! Uh, yeah, because I thought it would be quite unfashionable in a way. Oh, that's good. Well, I'm glad. I mean, I would recommend it as, a, as an absolutely fantastic read. And uh, in a way... It, Chimes in with the, um, you know, when I was writing Tiger, 
when I realized, you know, that my story was getting quite big, you know, and it was going off in all these directions. And I thought, I'm going to have a look at, uh, you know, there's something about writing about Russia. You can't do a, a wee novel about Russia. It, it, it just, it's such a big country, such a big place. So I thought, well, I'll just revisit these epics. You know, that's why they, they've all got, they're all these Russian novels are these huge doorstops. And so I went back and I read Anna Karenina, which similarly is massive, but it's a right rollicking read. I mean, you're just swept along. But the key thing about it was that it was a mess, an absolute mess. Now, an editor would be on, oh God, you know, nobody will plough through that. You know, there's like a hundred pages where he just goes on about farming, you know, and different implements. And, and some of the chapters are really short and some are really long. But the whole taken together is just phenomenal. And it gave me courage because I just thought what you have to do as the writer is just abandon yourself to that. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about the coherence and the coherence will come. And a similar thing I would say about it's an epic. And even though it takes, seems to take place in about, you know, three drawing rooms, it's an epic and it, it absolutely coherent, even though it's so fragmented and absolutely thrilling. So I would recommend anybody in the same way as you wouldn't be put off by the size of Anna Karenina to just have a go. Listening to the Read All About It podcast with me, Paul Cuddy, and my guest, Polly Clark. Polly, we're on to your third book choice of the podcast. It's a book you would recommend to anyone, and the book is called Great Soul of Siberia by Suyong Park. This is non fiction. It's one of the most beautiful and extraordinary stories I've ever come across. So, Suyong Park is or, or was a Korean school teacher and amateur photographer. And a bit like me, he got the Siberian tiger bug. I can't remember quite how it happened, but he got obsessed with the Siberian tiger and wanting to get non-camera trap images. So actual pictures that he had taken of these tigers, which is just, nobody had done it and is impossible. But, so what he did was, and it's just amazing, he left his, left his family and career and he went off into these remote parts of Siberia, where I, where I was and, uh, and beyond. And what he did was dig himself. He would find out where, where the tigers congregated by tracking, as we did. And then he dug himself, effectively, uh, a grave. So it was uh, four feet wide, six feet deep, six feet long, covered with, uh, very carefully covered with brushwood and everything. And then he would live in that with his cameras poking out for four, five, six months at a time. Unbelievable. And the suffering of that, I mean, it's just, he had these little bags of rice, rice balls, and he, uh, you know, just had to go to the toilet in little bags and, and tie them up and save them for when he could leave. And uh, at one point, he's so lonely, there's a little mouse comes in and uh, he, you know, he does about five pages on this mouse. And meanwhile, he's taking photographs of nothing because the tigers just, they're so rare. It's just vanishingly rare. And eventually, uh, and he's even attacked at one point, the tigers spot where he is and they can sense something. And it's just so frightening. He, uh, he has a, a leg comes through his roof of the tigress. You know, it doesn't feel anything, but they know that something's wrong that if they had decided to pursue that, 
he'd have been killed. But for some reason, they decide they hang around and they decide to leave it and they don't find him, but he has to get the hell out of there and he can't go back. So he does this for a period of oh, years, years he does it. And find it the most beautiful thing. And he's, he has got the only footage of so much of these tigers' lives, the only real footage that exists that hasn't been taken by camera traps. And there's a beautiful passage where he uh, has been filming for months, nothing, nothing, nothing. So he decides to just film the snow one day, because, you know, might make a nice bit of film. And suddenly these cubs just come out of the woods and start playing right in his, this field of vision. And then the mother comes and he just had, it is the most remarkable thing you could ever see. Just the mother and the cubs playing in the snow. Obviously that's made it all worth it. It is just, and as, and as a kind of document of what's happening to the tiger. So he follows the fam, the dynasty of them. And, you know, they keep getting shot and in, caught in snares and, you know, uh, they're all dying too young and, and all of this, but nevertheless, he gets these wonderful um, images. So it's just the most wonderful human and nature story uh, and what it takes actually, almost like an artist, what, what it, the commitment when you've got nothing. That's extraordinary. I mean, the story <laughs> itself is extraordinary, but that is a kind of almost testament to human endeavour that he keeps going. Absolutely. Even though it, everybody must be telling him it's such a futile exercise. It's never been repeated. There's a wonderful documentary, which I think is available on YouTube, called Tiger Quest about him and about his about what he did because the book was uh, quite a sensation when it came out and I think that yeah BBC journalists trying to sort of have a go you know but it's just too hard it's too hard you've got to be you've got to be a crazy Korean school teacher <laughs> to do that. I mean did you had you read that book prior to, to writing did that form, yeah. form part of your research? Yes yeah, so there are two standout books that one and another book called The Tiger by John Valent, which describes the story of a grudge-holding, uh, man-eating tiger in that region and pieces together how it has come to be that way and what and just the lives of the people uh, around. And this, yeah, this kind of sad poacher who, uh, yeah, tries to kill this tiger, doesn't succeed. And he thinks that if he leaves the forest for like, nine months the tiger will forget and it doesn't it's still there when he comes back so those two books because there's not a lot about them because they're so hard to i think mine is the only novel there's a wonderful book by colin thubron called in siberia which is just a travelogue of the whole of siberia and it was also very inspiring but yeah those those two i acknowledge them in my, in my novel they were just massive and i admire both of those such a lot because you can understand perhaps the, the lack of literature, fiction or non-fiction, about that, that region and those animals, given obviously you, you know what you had to go through in your research and then what they've had to go through as well, that it's you know the commitment to tell that story, it'd be daunting to most people. Yes, and it set, set a very high bar. So I did feel you can't mess about with this. You know, this is if you're gonna talk about these tigers, you can't just yeah, you can't, you can't just be casual about it. You can't just treat them as a sort of uh, little figment for you to use in your story. If you're going to do it, this is kind of the scale of what people are having to do to, to tell this 
no ordinary tiger story, as if any story, story about tigers was ordinary, but they are an, a, just an extraordinary uh, phenomenon of nature in this little bit, which hopefully, just as a slight aside, but hopefully they will be okay. They're probably not going to die out because Putin has taken it upon himself to make sure they don't. That he wants to be known as the tiger president and he's brought in all these rules and reinforcements and everything to protect them and the forests that they're in. So uh, sometimes it just takes a, a dictator to get things done in this case. <laughs> in this case, it's thanks. In terms of, again, the, the podcast, and again, I, I like, for me, it's great when, you, when I take you from a book that you would recommend to anyone to a book that you could be paid to read again. And, and your choice certainly piqued my interest for another reasons. The, the book you've chosen is The Handmaid's Tale by Margaret Atwood, which is quite often a choice for people in the podcast of a book that they would recommend to anyone. But also when I was reading the introduction, uh, she was one of the names that was mentioned that had praised Largefield, your first novel. So how, how did The Handmaid's Tale end up in, in this category? Um, well, it isn't because it's not a great book. It's because it absolutely scared the living daylights out of me. And not because it's like in a kind of Stephen King horror type way or whatever, but because it's so true. Then when I read it, I just kind of thought, well, we're kind of like millimetres from that life anyway. I could relate to it on a personal level, that it really wasn't that far. It was almost, you know, just a very slight jump of metaphor from how I kind of experienced life anyway. There are certain books do that. It's not the only one, but it's the kind of closest to the bone one. I would say that about certain other novels. Uh, Tess of the D'Urbervilles is another one for me. Read that once, thanks very much. Don't want to go there again. It's just too painful. And Handmaid's Tale, I found it too close. And indeed, that is exactly what's happened. So it's come back into prominence because it is so close to what, it's a wafer from what, you know, life actually is like. Well, we're, we're recording this podcast. It's going out on the 9th of November. At that point, we'll know the outcome of the American election, which we're just days away from. And a, a combination of, depending on how that result goes, and the kind of the su- Supreme Court appointee last week in terms of how, the, you know, conservatives in America see the Supreme Court being tilted in their favour, the Handmaid's Tale, as you say, it's, it's way off and away from just, you know, in a blink of an eye becoming a reality. Exactly. Yeah. And I, you may, I don't know if it's a weakness in, in me, but I, but I just, I think, yes, I think it's an absolute triumph of prescient literature, but also not that. And in fact, actually, she has a, an introduction, which I did read again to the sort of new edition where she says she wasn't trying to tell the future. You can't tell the future. She was trying to sort of amass a lot of things that had already happened or were happening. And yeah, and I guess it is, it's a kind of metaphor for the, for the present or the very near present. Another person might find it interesting as a political document or political vision. You need to read them, but you may not read them again. I did actually meet Margaret Atwood and, you know, obviously just said, wow, you know, the, the Handmaid's Tale is just so, so formative moment for me it's not even like it's a formative book it's a formative moment you just kind of think Jesus you can even imagine that is worrying you know (laughs) you can even imagine humans doing that to other humans it's just 
just too hard. I didn't say that part. But others of her novels, I could read again and again. So Alias Grace, loved that book. Uh, there's just something specific about Handmaid's Tale that it's a one-off for me. I mentioned, obviously, that Margaret Atwood was one of a number of people who praised your first novel. One of the other ones was Richard Ford, and you had also chaired a, a tour that he did of the UK. I mean, how was that? Because I, I'm asking as somebody who absolutely loves Richard Ford's book. Oh, really? Yeah, he's, uh, well, he is a kind of giant, isn't he? A giant of literature. Yeah, and a very, yeah, wonderful, wonderful writer. I loved The Sports Writer and Independence Day. I love his, um, his story of how he kind of finally made it. I don't know if you'd heard this, but he, you know, before Sports Writer, he had, you know, he wrote lots of quite dense, lovely novels, but they weren't, you know, and everyone sort of went, oh, yes, very nice, but nobody really bought them. Finally, his agent said, the next one's got to sell Richard or, or your toast. So he's been married to his wife since he was a teenager. They kind of, and, uh, you know, he was talking about it with her. And she just said, why don't you try and write a novel about a, a man trying to be happy? That's how Frank Bascom was born. And that's, that's when it all kind of took off for him, was when he, when he came across this character and, and did it that way. As a person, well, he's incredibly sort of generous, but he's quite volcanic and explosive. And the tour I did with him, I mean, it was all quite haphazard, really, but uh, I used to do projects for the Arts Council. Uh, and they had this wonderful idea in the region where I was then, which was kind of southeast, to bring over an author to the UK who was massive in their own country, but not known in somewhere like Maidenhead. And that's perfect. Richard Ford is adored in America, London, or all the, all the kind of metropolises. But when you get out into the sticks, no one's heard of him. And then we were going to build up his... So we booked him all these dates in places like Maidenhead, Swindon. And then we had readers' groups. This is when re book groups were quite new, uh, you know, to sort of get them reading his books in advance and to just to see how that worked. So he came over for this and I was, you know, taking him around and presenting him. And uh, I couldn't drive. So this like icon of American literature, you know, we'd be in, in some garage, you know, and he had to drive himself. You know, we'd have the map out, you know, trying to find the, the way to Swindon. He was good about it, you know, because he, he's quite grand, you know, and he'd be like, Polly, you've got to learn to drive, man. <laughs> he was um, phenomenal to do that with. And it really... I think it did have an effect, although this is a great moment when we went to one of these places. I think it might have been Swindon. And he went on local radio. So I was in the sort of little green room listening to this live thing. And so he goes in and the guy just said, oh, what did it feel like to when you when you saw the film of your book coming out? You know, and all, <laughs> all, all the aliens. And he just went, yeah, that's not my book. And there was just this horrific silence. You went, what, Independence? Yeah, <laughs> different Independence Day. <laughs> Great moment. So he was very good about that as well. So he, he, I think he quite enjoyed it. You know, it was just going out into the sticks and uh, where people weren't kowtowing to him all the time and building an audience from nothing. So it was a wonderful experience for me. And to just be around somebody like that who... He's such a, a masterclass in talking about his work. And he even, on one of the events, he 
just got up and read one of my poems. And the audience are like, we didn't pay for this, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but he did, he just got up and read it in this fantastic way. And it was uh, so very generous, wonderful man. We are on to the fifth and final question in the podcast. And this is either the last book you read or the book you're currently reading. And the book that you've chosen is The Smash Up by Ali Benjamin, which is a proof of a book that's forthcoming in February 2021, which I'm always, you know, it must be great when you, you're kind of getting the first taste of a book that the rest of us won't get until next year. Yes. Well, I mean, I, the audience can't see it, but um, it's a very, very uh, drop-dead proof. It's absolutely in your face. And in a way, it ties in a bit with what we were um, talking about with The Handmaid's Tale, because it's set, uh, it's an American novel, and it's set just after uh, Trump's been elected in the kind of sort of bewilderment that you're sort of, you're, you know, your bog standard liberal um, Americans were feeling then. And it's the story of a family and how all the things that are happening at that time. So Weinstein and Me Too and the rise of sort of woke uh, millennial culture and everything all converging on this moment. It's hard for me to read fiction when I'm writing, as I was saying, so I don't read that that much, but it's absolutely buzzing. And also I'm always a bit worried about books that are set in a particular moment. And especially if, if something is about Trump, because we all agree. So it's very difficult to write something that isn't just going, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, it's very difficult to be funny or satirical about a target that we all agree is bad, you know. But she does it, it's great. It's a great read. So it's actually kind of, yeah, it's a bit of a shot in the arm. It's just got a lot of energy. And uh, so I'm really glad to be reading it. So how, how, did you, how did you end up getting the advance proof then in terms of? It, it's published by the same people who publish me. Right. And my publisher thought that I would like it, you know, just thought I would be interested in it. So I'm reading it with a view to maybe, you know, giving it a quote or something. You know, they don't send me, I'm quite careful about that because I can't, just mentally can't take on very much of other work when I'm working but this is actually very fun to read and I think that's very difficult to satirize everything so not not just the Trump types but the people who hate the Trump types you know she's managing to uh, make it all quite funny and very pertinent to the moment so it kind of touches on what you were saying about that book, is that how can you satirise somebody who is beyond satire? You know, you couldn't, before Trump came along, if you made that character up, nobody would have published it. They'd have said, that's just ridiculous. Yeah, exactly. And it's hard to sort of make it funny. And yeah, and it's, and it's hard to make the, because I, I think it's kind of the central, well, insofar, I mean, it's a novel, so it's not, not got a political axe to grind, but the kind of central notion of it is that in a way, there's a sort of middle-aged, you know, liberal guy that we'd all recognise in the centre of the story. And it's people like that who have actually enabled this to happen. So in a way, all of us kind of wringing our hands over this, we are actually the ones who kind of created the climate that made it possible to happen. That's an interesting take on it, because it's always very easy to kind of blame, you know, the basket of deplorables or something that have done it. But actually, we're all at fault. We kind of almost come to the end of the podcast. Obviously, as I said, I mentioned right at the start, the paperback of Tiger is out this week on November the 12th. I'm, I'm guessing that you're always working on, you're always writing, that's just part of you know, the daily process for you? Yes, well, I've got a, I'm working on my third novel, which is 
coming out in 2022. So that has a, a kind of a cent central part to do with a, a research that needs a research trip. I was intending to make a transatlantic sailing voyage. <laughs> um, Don't make but, it easy for yourself, do you? <laughs> no, we, I kind of wish it well, well, but it's all been scuppered, for want of a better word, by, the, by what's going on. So um, I'm not quite sure quite how, how that's going to pan out, that middle part. But yeah, so I'm writing it. I'm writing it in a different order to allow time to be able to make the trip because a, a central part of it is set. It's a family on a sailing trip on a boat across the Atlantic. And that's something I've never done. I've never been in open ocean where you are in international waters, away from land, away from all national laws or whatever yes so that was what i was aiming to to do so that's slightly in my way but yeah like you say you just carry on and uh, like all of us and hopefully it will be become clear listen it has been an absolute joy to talk to you on this Thank podcast you. um and i'm looking forward to to reading tiger myself and i hope everybody who's listened to it will once they're finished listening to the podcast will make way to their, their nearest bookshop and, and buy a copy of the paperback that's out this week. If anybody wants to just check out any of Holly's choices, including the uh, quite traumatic children's book <laughs> that um, we mentioned from Heinrich Hoffman, just go to my website, com, and each guest in the podcast has their own page. I'll just list uh, the book choices that they make on for each of the questions. Uh, but Polly, thanks very much uh, for joining me. I've really enjoyed the book chat today. Thank you very much, Paul. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to the Read All About It podcast and I'd love to hear what you thought about it. You can get in touch via Twitter at ReadAllAbout20, on Instagram at ReadAllAboutItPodcast or you can send an email to ReadAllAboutIt at paulcuddehy.com. If you've enjoyed the podcast, subscribe, leave a review and spread the word. If you haven't enjoyed it, say nothing to anybody. But I do hope you can join me, Paul Cuddihy, next time on the Read All About It podcast. And in the meantime, keep reading.